Great, thank you very much, Claire. And uh, good evening, everyone. Please keep your Bibles in front of you for Daniel 10. That'd be really helpful. And uh, I'll pray as we get stuck in together. Lord God, please help us tonight as we study your word. This stuff can often be confusing and difficult to understand. So please, Lord, we need you to open our eyes and our minds and our hearts and that we would grasp our need to trust you each and every day. Amen. How do you respond to bad news? Or perhaps more appropriately for tonight's passage, how do you respond to other people's bad news? Maybe they're struggling to find work or they've had a difficult medical diagnosis or anything else. One way of responding perhaps is to smile sweetly and offer some platitudes but as soon as you move on, you've forgotten and you won't remember it till you next see them. Or perhaps as a Christian, you might tell them you'll pray for them, but you'll still end up forgetting about it until the next time you see them. Well, as we'll see tonight, Daniel does neither. And uh, last week, Ken took us through Daniel chapter nine, where the 70 years of exile in Babylon was coming to an end. In the first year of King Cyrus's reign, some of God's people had left Babylon and had headed back to Jerusalem. And the first order of business for them, they need to make the place secure and they need to restore the sign of God's presence with them. In other words, they need to rebuild the temp- their walls of the city and they need to rebuild the temple. But it's two years on from that now and the news from Jerusalem is not good. The 40,000 or so Jews who had returned are going through a nightmare. They are facing relentless opposition. And even when the temple was finally rebuilt, it was rubbish. It was nothing like the Jerusalem they remembered or had hoped for. It's a crushing disappointment for them. And so Daniel's now in his retirement. And how does he respond? He commits himself to three weeks of prayer. Daniel isn't with his fellow Jews. He hasn't returned to, Babylon, uh, to Jerusalem. He's still in Babylon. He has solidarity, though, with them. And when he hears about what's happening, he's, he's gutted. He fasts from all the nice foods he might normally enjoy, and he doesn't use his normal lotions, which we might take it to mean it was really uncomfortable for him. It's 40 degrees plus in the desert, and there's no moisturizer. He's probably alone simply because of the body odors that would have resulted. So I ask again, how do we respond when we hear bad news, especially from our fellow Christians, and especially those who are far away and facing opposition? Well, you may know that we at St. Joseph's partner with a number of others who have gone to different parts of the world to serve the church and to help others hear about Jesus. And as a starter for 10, if you've not already, why not sign up to their prayer letters and hear more about what they're doing For example, you can pray for Chris and Rosie Redfern out in Valencia in Spain, which may on the surface sound quite cushy. It's actually hard ground for them and it's hard work for the gospel. Or how about Elspeth Gray working with Arab World Ministries in a country where it's illegal to become a Christian and it's illegal to meet with other Christians just like we're doing here tonight. And so when Daniel prays here in Daniel 10, it's the response to that prayer that we're looking at tonight. And so let's have a look again at verse one down in your Bibles. 
Verse 1 of Daniel 10. In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a word was revealed to Daniel, who was named Belteshazzar. That's his Babylonian or his exile name. And the word was true, and it was a great conflict. And he understood the word and had understanding of the vision. The detail of this vision, it's in chapters 11 and 12, which we'll look at next week. So chapter 10 that we've got tonight is kind of like the intro to it. And so after praying for three weeks, Daniel gets the answer to his prayers in the form of a powerful vision. And the different commentators say different things about what this means and what's going on here, but my impression is that what Daniel sees is two different beings. Okay, so the first is in verses four to six, so we'll read that again quickly. On the 24th day of the first month, as I was standing in the bank of the great river, that is the Tigris, I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, a man clothed in linen, with a belt of fine gold from Uphaz around his waist. His body was like beryl, his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and the sound of his words like the sound of a multitude." And we're given this amazing detailed set of descriptions which bears a lot of similarity to another part of the Bible. In the book of Revelation, the apostle John sees a vision which is really similar to this. And it gives us good reason to think that what Daniel's seeing here is actually a vision of the Lord Jesus himself hundreds of years before he was even born as a human. Amazing. And how does Daniel react? Well, he pretty much just collapses right there on the floor, broken and humbled from what he's seen. Why does God break him in this way? I think God wants Daniel to know that he can't solve these problems that the Jews are facing. He's powerless to change people and deal with these kinds of challenges. And if he's going to experience God's comfort and power, he first has to feel his weakness before an almighty God. The commentator James Phillips says this, God does not transfer to us his power. We still remain the poor, weak, puny creatures that we are. And no man may claim to himself any kind of importance because his prayers happen to be answered. And this is why we have the picture of the man, Daniel, mighty man of God that that he was, down in the dust on his hands and knees, trembling for the very wealth and glory of these revelations. Even when God is wonderfully answering our prayers, we are nothing. We have nothing to boast about. It's not our folded hands or bended knees, but the power of God in sovereign working. The second being that Daniel sees is then got the job to reveal the detail of the vision to him. And again, different commentators have different ideas, but... It seems sensible, at least for convenience, to think that this is the angel Gabriel, not least because he's the one who helped Daniel back in chapters eight and nine. And so Gabriel uh, helps Daniel by doing two things. So firstly, he reassures Daniel that his prayers have been heard. He reassures Daniel that his prayers have been heard, verses 10 to 12. And behold, a hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. And he said to me, O Daniel, man greatly loved, understand the words that I speak to you and stand upright, for now I have been sent to you. And when he had spoken this to me, I stood up trembling. And he said to me, 
Fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before your God, your words have been heard, and I have come because of your words. (laughs) Think of what a huge encouragement that would have been for Daniel. He's been diligent in prayer for three weeks, and now he's told, don't be afraid. God loves you and has heard your prayers. God's heard and has immediately dispatched Gabriel to his response. Imagine way back when, the days before mobile phones, it's hard to imagine these days, you had to rely on people being at home in order to catch them on the phone. And even if they were at home, they might have been screening their calls. In other words, like caller ID, you'd watch and wait and see who actually was on the phone. So you'd ring someone, the answer phone would kick in, and they could still hear you on the machine and decide whether to answer the call or not. But as the caller, you'd then end up having this kind of one-sided conversation with the answer machine, a bit like this. Hello, it's just me calling because you said you'd be at home. Uh, Maybe you're screening your calls. If you're there, can you pick up? Um, Yep, just me waiting, seeing if you're at home. And sometimes it can feel like that with prayer, can't it? Speaking to a heavenly answer phone hoping that God gets the message. But what an encouragement for Daniel to hear that he's greatly loved. He's greatly loved. God cares about Daniel and has immediately sent an answer. And if Daniel isn't any more special in God's eyes, so we can know that God cares about us and does hear our prayers. And whilst our prayers don't have any kind of magic powers in and of themselves, they are how we express our complete dependence on God to fulfill his promises. So back to the angel Gabriel. Secondly, he he explains where he's been for three weeks. He explains where he's been for three weeks. Verse 13, the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days, but Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I was left there with the kings of Persia. So if Gabriel was dispatched on day one of Daniel's prayerathon, then why has it taken three weeks to get to this point? This isn't some kind of weird excuse like if you've lost your homework or it's late. This is actually a rare glimpse behind the curtain of reality to see the real battle that's going on behind all of human history. I wonder if you've ever visited a traditional seaside town and seen a Punch and Judy show. It's definitely one of those peak British things. And uh, whilst Googling for an image to stick up on the screen, I learned that there's actually only three seaside uh, Punch and Judy shows left in the country, which is probably about right since uh, these days it's probably not considered anything close to politically correct, Um, especially when you try and explain to people that one of the classic plot uh, plot lines is about the baby and the sausage machine. (laughs) There's lots of you looking rather quizzically now. I'll tell you about it a bit later. Um, But imagine you're a child and watching this show and you're entranced by the slapstick comedy, but you sneak around the side of the stage and all is revealed. You see the puppet master. And what's described here as the prince of the kingdom of Persia is meant to be understood as a demonic being. Throughout the Bible, we get various accounts of angels and we know they definitely come in strength. For example, in Acts 12, an angel breaks Peter's chains and busts him out of prison. And in Matthew 28, supremely, we read how an angel breaks the seal and rolls away 
the enormous stone that was blocking the entrance to Jesus' tomb. And given the strengths of angels, we know that whatever opposition Gabriel had, it's not to be messed with. And the Bible does tell us about demonic powers. For example, in Matthew 16, there's a power that influences one of the disciples, Simon Peter, and he tries to discourage Jesus from going to the cross. And Jesus rebukes him, saying, get behind me, Satan. Or in Luke 22, when Judas betrays Jesus and hands him over to the chief priests, Luke says, Satan entered into Judas. Or when Jesus is sentenced to crucifixion, surely that's an attempt by demonic powers to thwart God's plan to build his church by working through the Jewish leaders, through Pilate, through the crowds, to crucify the Son of God. We don't know exactly what this battle between angels and demons looks like. You might imagine it's kind of like the ultimate good versus evil scene in a film. But the Bible doesn't try to tell us. It just says that it's real. In Ephesians chapter 6, Paul speaks of the spiritual battle like this. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. The real enemies of God's work aren't something that we can see with our eyes, but it's true. It's true. They are there. And Jesus himself refers to Satan or the devil as the ruler of this world and describes him like this. He was a murderer from the beginning and has nothing to do with the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. The devil's goal is to thwart God's plans. If God's plans are to build his church, the devil will try and stop that, just like he did in Daniel's day by trying to stop the rebuilding of Jerusalem and the temple. If God's plan is to draw people back to himself, which it is, the devil will try and stop that. And if God's plan is to grow us as Christians to be more like Jesus, which it is, the devil will try and stop that too. And what tactics does he use to do this? Well, he's the father of lies, so he, well, lies. And why does he lie? Well, it's the same reason that you or I might lie, to change what's perceived as reality, to make people think that fiction is truth and truth is fiction. And Satan lies to undermine God, to make us think that God can't be trusted, that in fact it's God who's the liar. You might have read C.S. Lewis's book, The Screwtape Letters, and it's fiction, but from the perspective of an elder demon called Screwtape, writing to his young demon nephew, who's trying to lead a new Christian astray. In the preface, C.S. Lewis writes, readers are advised to remember that the devil is a liar. Step back for a minute and put yourself in Satan's shoes. What lies would you tell people to convince them that the things of God aren't real? Perhaps you try and convince people that God isn't real, he doesn't exist. Or maybe more appropriately for us, that God isn't good. And in doing so, you're enticing people to rebel against God. You then double down on that and convince people that they know best, not God. If God isn't good, then why does he get to tell 
you how to live? Why does he get to tell you how to live? And then finally, if people can decide for themselves what's good and what's not, then surely their own pleasure and personal fulfillment is all that matters. And so what happens is we crave instant gratification and it ultimately diverts us from seeking God's good plans. So we seek after praise and recognition from others. We long for status and pride. And if we get that result or that promotion, we'll be truly happy. And we choose sin that we think will satisfy us, only to find out that whatever sin pretends only leads to death. We need to be on the lookout for the devil's lies. And they're often hiding in plain sight around us. Where can you see them in your own lives? And brothers and sisters, it's important that we remember that when we hear these lies, these are the death throes of a defeated being. The battles might still rage on, but the war is won. At the cross, Jesus deals with our sin. And when he rose again on Easter day, he defeated death and sealed the fate of Satan and his demonic army. Their future is certain. The book of Revelation gives us a vision of that judgment day when Satan is finally defeated and the battles will end. So how about Daniel? How does he respond when he's been told all of this? Verses 18 and 19. Again, one having the appearance of a man touched me and strengthened me and he said, O man greatly loved, fear not, peace be with you, be strong and of good courage. And as he spoke to me, I was strengthened and said, let my Lord speak, for you have strengthened me. Daniel's told, don't be afraid, don't worry. Keep going, keep trusting in God's promises and depend on him in prayer to keep his promises. For Daniel, that's about preparing to receive the detail of the vision that we'll hear about next week. And even more than that, preparing him for the reality of the years to come because it's going to be bleak for Daniel and his people. And what about us? What are the takeaways for us? Well, here are a few things that have struck me as I've prepared over the past week. Firstly, we've got to take it seriously. It's easy to ignore what we can't see and assume it's not there. But there is a battle going on behind the scenes, and there are dark forces at work. The temptation might be for some to think about this too much, to get a bit obsessed about the spiritual conflict and see it everywhere. If you can't get into a parking space, that's Satan's work. But the Bible doesn't go into enough detail for us to be so specific about it. And actually, I think the greater danger is for us to think about it too little. We don't want to be seen as strange. and We don't want to trust in what we can't see. So we act as if it doesn't exist or it doesn't matter. It does. Take it seriously. Secondly, like Daniel, we are to be strong in the Lord. Don't believe the devil's lies, but instead keep preaching the gospel to yourself. We should immerse ourselves in God's word to remind ourselves of what truth is. Keep meeting with other believers, like here on Sunday, and keep encouraging one another. Thirdly, pray. Prayer does matter. It's how we express our dependence on God to fulfill his promises. So keep praying for people to come to faith and keep praying for growth in our own lives. 
I remember a member of our congregation telling me how they were praying for someone they know to grow as a Christian using the fruits of the Spirit from the ends of Galatians 5 as a basis for prayer. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Why not commit to praying for fruit like that for yourself and for someone else you know? And finally, the Lord is sovereign. Visions like this show us how God is in control and wants to prepare us as his people for the future. Let me pray. Father God, we're sorry for how we so readily fail to trust you. We all too easily believe Satan's lies, sometimes without even realizing. And so in the light of Satan's schemes, help us to fix our eyes on you and what you accomplished for us at the cross. And help us to pray, to exercise our complete dependence on you and to trust you for the future. Please strengthen us and prepare us for that future. And help us to look forward to the day when Satan and death will finally be defeated in your perfect kingdom. Amen.